I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. the Dharma Realm podcast for February 3rd, 2012, and today we're talking about love and creation. So uh, last month we um, started off talking about this movie called Tron Legacy and, you know, kind of looking at it as a potentially Buddhist film. Who knew we would get so much traction out of this one movie? Yeah. I did. I did. <laughs> you did too. You're the one who said we'd probably get three or four episodes yeah, out of it, well. and I didn't. I just kind of accepted it. And you, you were right. You, you just ran with it. You were right. You rolled with the... <laughs> anyway, well, uh, more, more importantly, I think now we're going to talk about we're, we're sort of being inspired by right, right. conversations to go in other directions. Yeah. I mean, last time we talked about the suspension of disbelief and um, perception and, um, you know, how much uh, our perception is actually colored uh, by our experiences and our expectations. Uh, but another thing we kind of talked about is um, the thing that I brought up uh, with, like, music, for example. Right? And in one sense, we can talk about our reaction to a piece of music, and we did, you know, and how our reactions change. And we, we might love a song 20 years ago, and we listen to it now, and we're like, why did I like this song? Either we, it's horrible, or I don't, I, I can understand it's a good song, but I just don't have the same emotional reaction to it. But to me, what about the creation of those songs? Right, or what the creation about, of art. Yeah, art, uh, film, literature, whatever. What about... Um, the, it's it's uh, it's almost magical for me it's music that's where the magic is and like i can like find i found songs in the past 40 years or you know let's say 20 30 years of my um adolescent and adult existence that just blew me away like it's uh, this is uh and you know being a musician myself too you realize this take wasn't so good yeah this take is magical mm-hmm. i listen to some of the music that i i've done with um, my friend greg uh and sometimes I'm like, where did that come from? Yeah. You know, I wasn't planning it. I'm, I'm more of a improv- spontaneous, improvising kind of musician. And I didn't go into it with that idea. We were just playing and this music happened. Right. And I, it, I'm, I'm, I consider myself very fortunate to, to have created music that at least I can perceive that something magical happened. Does that magical creation of something beautiful or artistic or whatever, can Buddhism account for that? Does it have a place in the Buddhist system? Uh, that's kind of one of the things that we wanted to look at. And I think uh, another thing that maybe we want to look at is love, right? And the, the magic of love, too. Yeah. And is that merely attachment? Right. Uh, is it kind of a negative thing, like classic Buddhism portrays it as? Or is it something kind of outside of the system? Huge, big questions. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, I think to sort of... I don't even know where to go. I mean, yeah. I, I think that you know your your first question about you know uh, creativity and 
you know, making something beautiful. Last time we were talking about Yogacara and, and our reactions to things, either being positive or negative or neutral. And, um, you know, it seems to me the, the judgment that we assign to some kinds of creative endeavors are positive, right? You said yourself, like, I'm, I'm making something that's beautiful or something that's amazing. Something magical to me seems like a very positive response. So from <laughs> one point of view, it seems like the whole idea, and this is what you're saying here, is the sort of idea that um, this is just attachment, right? We right, have an attachment right. to art, and you know, is is that all? Is that all that Buddhism has to say about art or literature or music or film or any sort of creative endeavor? Mm-hmm. You have this attachment to it, and that's bad. Or you could say that the desire to create music in the first place is itself a desire, and is desire bad? Mm-hmm. What does Buddhism say about this? Because it seems like it would be kind of, you know. Right, right, right. But that's the analytical aspect of it. Of, 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 um, and I feel like maybe that's what the ISOs were in, in Toronto <laughs> Legacy. We've got to tie it back to our first episode of the year. Um, that magical something beyond pure analysis, beyond pure neutrality. Um, you know, I, I, so I remember being jealous of Christian, Christianity and Christians in a way because they have Bach. Um, the Johann Sebastian Bach, right? They have this composer whose music is incredible. I mean, there's a valid judgment there, but setting that aside, that, um, some, that it's, it seemed to, to... I mean, Christianity has the idea of creation built into it, mm-hmm. right? That, 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 I mean, that's an aspect of God, the creator, that is a very huge distinction from Buddha, who's not a creator. Mm-hmm. In Buddhism, a creation almost seems to be just kind of swept aside, it, it happens, right? And they, you know, they recognize that. Yeah, in a way, this dream, this world may just be a dream of Brahma, right? It may um, just be some kind of thing created out of seemingly a, a supreme deity. But Buddhism then says that supreme deity isn't supreme. It's still got <laughs> even causes and conditions before that, right? So that's not the point. Let's move beyond that and get to the, the situation at hand, mm-hmm. right? And yet, and then Christianity seems to be saying, no, creation is good. God's creation is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's glorious. And that artists can um, create new works in praise of this beautiful creation. Right? And that, uh, that we can recognize works of art that are mind-blowing, <laughs> to use a maybe 60s phrase, right? To, that are just like sublime, mm-hmm. right? uh, uh, majestic in, in, their, in their art. Right? And I don't, Buddhist, I don't know if Buddhism has that. Um, like a, an art that's that's um, grandiose and majestic and sublime. On the, I mean, Buddhist art um, seems to have different values attached to it. Um, you know, Zen painting or or um, shakuhachi or you know, <laughs> thinking more Japanese kind of models. Sure. But yeah. So that's where, um, and as an artist too, it's kind of interesting. I mean, that's where um, uh, it's, it's always been kind of a big question for me, and so. So what do you, where do we go from here? How about love? Because <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be another. Um, well, I think the the reason I we I, I wanted to to bring it in um, is because when we were talking about this before we were recording is. Uh, this idea of creation and, you know, and I, I, I can, how you talk about music certainly resonates with me because I love music. Um, uh, you know, I love music more than you do, man, um, <laughs> but I'm not a musician. And so I don't have that kind of creative connection to it. I, I, I kind of feel that way about writing. Mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, <laughs> I can I can really appreciate um, just you know stuff that's really well written. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, experiences is this. Uh, there's a scholar Jan Nettier who um, does some pretty intense Buddhist studies stuff, and she's uh, uh, she's written some stuff on Buddhism in in, in the West, but mostly she does uh, you know translation work and you know sort of the hardcore. Um, classical Buddhist kind of scholarship. So stuff that I never read, right? Because I spend most of my time reading, you know, history, anthropology, that kind of thing. Um, but every once in a while, I'll come across something that, that, that Janet has written, and she's just an amazing writer. And she could be writing about the most boring thing, but she's so good at writing that I'm enthralled. You know, I'm just totally enthralled because, you know, I can see how she's got a good grasp of the language. And I wish that I could, you know, I aspire to be that kind of writer. So I, I get that kind of creation. Um, but again, it's a desire, right? It's this, this desire I have to to do something, mm-hmm. right? Um, that I judge as as positive, right. that I have this sort of positive value to it. Um, and 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 I and I think it's an important Buddhist question about the place of desire, because if you if you phrase it in this way of like I want to become a better writer, for example, that's sort of mundane. But then again, the whole you know, you could legitimately say isn't one of the per- the points of Buddhism. The whole goal is to become a better person, is to become the sort of better human being. You know how you become awakened, right? That's a desire. You know, the desire to become enlightened is itself a desire, and this is something that Buddhism talks about. How do you sort of get past the desire, even the desire for enlightenment? Right, right. And some we- kinds of Buddhism go that far, right? And they'll knock it down as attachment, right? right. Or, you know, the, the whole raft thing, right, of like, mm-hmm. you know, desire is part of the path, but once you reach it, then you get rid of the desire. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I think that, you know, and, and you, know, I, you know, I think this stuff kind of gets into the, you know, it's interesting we're doing this in February because Valentine's Day is coming up, which is a big romantic holiday. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to me that there's, that this whole idea of non-attachment seems uh, antithetical to ideas of romantic love. And I think that there's a strain, particularly in certain kinds of uh, what might be called traditional Buddhism, even though I don't want to use the word traditional, um, that seem to be really sort of anti-romantic love, right? Or even anti, I mean, the, the, the ideal. love. Yeah, the ideal is to be, to be a monastic, right? To be a self monastic. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing of leaving the home life. Right. Right, leaving the family life. That to be a renunciate. Even familial um, love is attachment. Right. Which and resonates with me a lot right now because I'm a new father, and in a very literal way, my wife and I created this little being, and I have a great amount of attachment for her. You know, mm-hmm. I have a great deal of love for my family. Is that bad? Is that not Buddhist? Make, make, make. Different kind of creation uh, from creating music or creating art, but there's still that act of creation, and there's then still a connection, think, that yeah. desire to create, then there's that attachment, there's the love, and then there's the sort of value judgment of, oh, this thing is beautiful and amazing. You know, It's really mm-hmm. magical to watch my daughter grow up. It's really magical to mm-hmm. create music. It's an amazing, wonderful thing. Does that not Buddhist? Right, right, right. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Particularly if, if you, know, you, you hold that the Buddhist ideal is the... the, the you know, not the householder, but the renunciant. Right, right, right. So, I mean, we could get into um, different kinds of um, Buddhism, but maybe to get there, 
Um, I was watching the most recent Star Trek movie. Um, not <laughs> we're, we're not going to leave sci-fi. Don't worry. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> um, the one, uh, the kind of reimagining with right, the right. new actors playing um, Kirk and Spock and Bones, and um, you find out why he's called Bones. And um, really well done. Yeah, I really like that movie. <laughs> um, some of the the the. the portrayal of McCoy, the doctor, is like a tribute. I mean, right. to me, it's just like, that's like a tribute to, to um, this Scully. actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I was really struck by Spock in this movie. And, you know, I, I, I actually didn't grow up watching Star Trek. It was on, my next door neighbor's dad loved Star Trek. I was more into Star Wars when I was a kid. I was like seven when Star Wars came out. Yeah. Um, and so Star Trek was in reruns at that point, but I didn't really get into it until later. Um, Star Trek, the motion picture is kind of boring. I like it, but um, it's kind of a boring film. So, you know, it wasn't until Wrath of Khan that you started to really be able to get into, into the whole thing, right? And then Next Generation. <laughs> um, Which I, you, I think you and I both sort of grew up on Next Generation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that yeah. Was very and much I was in college, right, yeah, when yeah, it yeah. started coming out. So it was like perfect timing. And um, But this new portrayal of Spock is interesting because they really go for that thing of... Um, his, is, his struggle with emotion. Yeah. His struggle with his dual... Um, heritage, so to speak, because his right. mother is human and his father is Vulcan, so he has to deal with his humanity is in conflict with his Vulcan identity. Right. And so the Vulcan thing is interesting. Is it really that severe? Is it really the the purging, it, the of, all purging emotion. of emotion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No love, no emotion whatsoever. And it really struck me, is that the Buddhist ideal too? Like, isn't that one Buddhist ideal that maybe not all Buddhists share, but that, you know, held up of, of um, not having any attachments, right? Moving beyond attachments. Um, so it was, it was pretty intense watching that film and, you know, thinking about that. Um, yeah, but what's the, I mean, it seems to me like Spock's whole, uh, his, his narrative, if you will, particularly in that, in, the, in that film, is about emotion, not so much attachment. Right, right, right. So we were talking but, about that. What, mm-hmm. I mean, is there is there a distinction in Buddhism between emotions and attachment? What does what does Buddhism have to say about emotion? Attachment is one thing. Mm-hmm. Attachment, mm-hmm. I think, falls into that. Um, what we were talking well, about last time bigger, about attachment's bigger than just emotion, but I think it right. applies to emotion, right? And that like the the big emotions are love and and hate, mm-hmm. right? And that we're not supposed to do those things. <laughs> We're not supposed to get caught up in romantic entanglements or familial attachment, right? The ideal, it, this is one version of Buddhism with the monastic ideal. Yeah. The whole point to leave the family, to, to leave them behind, all these. And this happens in Mahayana too, like the backstories of, of um, Buddhas, you know. So as a bodhisattva, he, um, you know, ransomed his, his wife and kids off, like to show that he had no attachments. He just like sold them into slavery, right? I mean, like really... It, Intense, Intense over-the-top yeah, yeah, yeah. denial of any kind of emotional attachments, with the flip side being anger, right? That we're not supposed to have this anger or aversion. And anger is, in one way, is kind of an emotion, but it's also a response to, uh, a negative response to people or situations or, or objects. Um, so I think in one sense, there is this kind of, I mean, that was a problem in China, too, right? That, like, the China, the land of filial piety. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And all of a sudden, here comes this, this religion that's saying, no, 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 yeah, you're supposed yeah. to get out of that. And it's interesting yeah. how Buddhists respond to that because then they start writing texts that really support the idea of filial piety and really mm-hmm. ascribing to the Buddha certain ideas about filial piety that you know, seemed in direct contradiction to a man who named his son Fetter. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I don't know. Shinju is in. I mean, Jodo Shinju is 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 it's like a, a whole other case. case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Jodo Shinju seems to, while it recognizes that ultimately, yes, we're supposed to move beyond these attachments, that unfortunately we can't on our own. Right. Right. And so um, Shinju is really interesting in that it almost seems to affirm emotion and affirm humanity. Right. Affirm a lot of those things. Uh, at the same time denying them, like this kind of contradictory denial and affirmation uh, that happens at the same time with the understanding that we'll never move beyond them until uh, we die, until our karma runs out. Um, yeah, it's, but it's also interesting that, that sometimes you, you see language that uses attachment to make a, a broader point, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's that language of, um, uh, you know, uh, everybody has been my mother. Right, right, right. Right, right so right. it's like, you know, we should be compassionate toward you know the beings around us because it's at some point in the infinite past through karma and rebirth and whatnot everybody has been my mother so it's sort of like playing on a, a, a very familiar emotion or attachment that we might have in terms of uh, family commitments and using that in order to make this sort of larger ethical point right. so to speak and yeah that's a good point that um uh, and that's that might just be you know rhetoric and not or rhetorical or not. No, no, no. I think that's the flip side. And the compassion of the Buddha is a key part of the equation that we haven't mentioned, mm-hmm. really, right? And that uh, ultimately, right? Part of the problem with attachment, like familial attachment, is it's only to your family members, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, I think Buddhism. One way you can look at Buddhism is rather than saying get rid of that attachment, it's saying universalize that feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't only have it for people you're blood related to. Don't only have it for certain people. That this should be extended to all beings, right? So that actually that brings up that that kept going through my head and I couldn't quite get there. But um, but I think yeah yeah I mean that's one aspect of uh, Mahayana Buddhism certainly um, that uh, it's not a cold uh, indifferent indifferent universe um, necessarily. Like the 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 the, the compassion side is. Uh, key to a lot of the Mahayana kind of schools. And that was, is, is compassion, though, an emotion? That's, you know, I read once, um, <laughs> um, I think not. Well, no, n- you know what? I, oh, this is good. <laughs> yeah, I've got some of the good this stuff. This is good, yeah. <laughs> this is about Tron. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking up um, the four immeasurables. Right, right, right. right? And um, one is Maitri, mm-hmm. right? Or this kind of uh, loving kindness. Uh, and the example it gave was, this is like the love of a mother for her child. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds different than friendliness, right? This is encouraging that feeling of love of a mother for her child to people, to feel that for all. Right. Okay? And then the next one is karuna, compassion. And it says, this is like the love of a mother for her sick child. So, wow! Yeah, this wow. is intense. See, I told yeah, you it was good. <laughs> um, that uh, the compassion is, from the Buddha's point of view, seeing people suffering and having an answer for that suffering and wanting to help them. It's not dispassionate. So it's not it's not an attachment, right? Because the other, th- there's two more. I, I hope I can remember. I know one's equanimity. Um, and... Uh, Another one is, um, let's see, it's somewhere in my computer. One is like um, like a child, no, like a mother seeing her child um, enjoying something or, or doing something. 
and that the the um, it's almost like uh, kind of indifference. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Brahma Mirrors, Metta Sutra. Uh, sympathetic joy sympathetic and equanimity. Joy. Uh, so a sequ- sympathetic joy, I think, is the one that um, is like uh, watching the mother watching her child succeed. Hmm. So the, that we should inc- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cultivate this for all. For all beings. And it's like when a mother sees her child pass a test with an A or something or get into a great college, that sympathetic joy that you feel. And then the equanimity is the feeling of a mother um, seeing her, her child engaged in something. That you're not concerned, you're not, it's just like They're just doing equanimity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's the, that, that kind of way of looking at it, it uh, resonates so much on a different level for me now than I think it would have a year ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, since I have a child. Mm-hmm. So I have a more of an understanding of what that is sort of, what that is sort of like. I mean, uh, it's interesting watching my, my wife interact with our daughter because they are already developing their own sort of relationship. And I can see when you say a mother for her sick child, I can see, mm-hmm. you know, the look on my wife's face when she is afraid that our daughter is sick mm-hmm. and like what that feels like. And that's totally different. And then to try to, think about that kind of feeling and, you know, universalize it, as you said, to think, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, so there are some people out there in the world that I think are ridiculous, right? That I have all of this aversion to, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as we were talking about last time, I have an aversion to this person that I don't like this person. I think that they're, you know, bad or wrong or weird or whatever, and I don't want to deal with them. But I'm supposed to generate within me the same kind of love that my wife has for our daughter to this person that I can't stand. That's that's some heavy stuff right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think even if you haven't had children, such as myself, you still know what it was like to be a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And not everyone actually may have those looks, right? I mean, not everyone has a... Some people, unfortunately, don't have these feelings for their children. But I think in the vast majority of cases, they at least at some point early on, till they became teenagers or something, I don't know, but um, <laughs> and started rebelling themselves. But, um, you know, well, that well, we've, well, we have experienced right. that. Um, love, even if we haven't had it for something else, right? Or we can look to other sort of cultural reference reference points. I mean, you know, I mean, that's another thing that, that art and 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 uh, creativity can do is we can create. Hmm. You know, I mean, I could easily say, okay, maybe, you know, like for example, in my own experience, I didn't grow up with a father, so a lot of like father references don't make sense to me. But I can look <laughs> to movies that have sort of father son dynamics and say, oh, okay, this is a sort of this is the way it's supposed to be or whatever. I can sort of relate to it on that level. <laughs> it's not as direct, but it's. A, a, pin, a touch point. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a whole other episode on Tron Legacy because it's a father-son father son movie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna get four. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's interesting to think about, um, you know, compassion and love from that point of view, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, rather than the sort of simplistic uh, romantic love. Yeah. So and don't you know? Don't buy your sweetheart anything for Valentine's Day. Yeah, and if, if she gets mad at you, you know, don't don't call make us. Make her listen to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> And the whole issue of romantic love is problematic anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can't even go there because I don't, you know, but there's been, you know. Because you don't have any love. You're cold right. and dead. You're a Vulcan. Uh, yeah, Vulcan. <laughs> Half Vulcan. <laughs> um, the best is when, in the new movie, when he goes, are you out of your Vulcan mind? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the idea of romantic love is relatively new in human yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and that's a whole realm of study that's kind of interesting, but also very difficult. 
Um, and I'm sure it's going to be different in European culture and East Asian culture. South, you know, different cultures will have different versions of it. Um, but I think Julia Kristeva had a book on that that, like, I had because it was, like, for the class, and I just never read it, so I can't really speak on it other than to say that it's a new idea. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's difficult to... I mean, I, I, I'm really appreciative that we're having this conversation about the difference between, you know, uh, compassion and emotion, right? Because I think that it's easy to just sort of say, oh, well, you know, if I'm compassionate towards someone, that's sort of like an emotional response, but it's quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, different to think about the kinds of relationships people had in different times and places and cultures and history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of our ideas about love in contemporary United States is this sort of, you know, uh, hallmark kind of Valentine's Day sort of romantic love ideal, which, you know, I mean, you know, that another genre of film, right? The romantic comedy, it's like, you know, romantic comedies are always about the first part of love and they never deal with, you know, the day after the wedding, right? Mm -hmm. When that's when the real work happens. And that is a whole different thing. That's a whole different kind of, uh, experience, which is not just purely emotional. It's it's there's a lot more going on there that's much more subtle, and I think that compassion and the way that we react to one another mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. is is helpful to think about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah. to get back to the Buddhist thing, I don't think I I don't think that thinking about it in the, in these terms, this question of of what Buddhism might have to say about love, it's different, right? It's it's not so simplistic as to say, oh well, traditionally Buddhists say you should leave your family. Like that's just way too simplistic. There's right, a lot right, more right, right, right. a lot more depth going on there. Yeah, yeah. And what a monastic institution would actually be like in eighth century India or in <laughs> right um right. or tenth century th- Japan. Right. Or, or down the street or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because you know, certainly uh, the the ideal might be that that monks should sort of hold up the ideal of a dispassionate or, or not dispassionate, but you know, not attached to their emotions kind of thing. But I don't know. Most monastics, monastics I've met have been um, far more human than mm-hmm, Vulcan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> to extend the metaphor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing that I've been thinking about too is uh, the possibility for like multiple. Viewpoints is kind of a plural viewpoint, and I guess that um, I feel like that's a lot of times the kind of where I'm coming from, uh, and I, you know, that, and I think Buddhism accepts it too, historically, that you know, Buddhism when it goes into other cultures, it doesn't say we are the only religion, we're the true one, your others are r- wrong, get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Instead, it says no, yeah, that your religion works on a certain level. Um, Ultimately, ours is better, <laughs> right? But um, that it, it incorporates the, the native religions mm-hmm. like Shinto or Bun or, you know, um, Taoism, Confucianism, right? It, it, it interacts with those. Right. So the, the Chinese Buddhist monks adding into the, the, the whole system, the idea of filial piety. They don't reject filial piety or try to change right. Chinese culture, but they adapt to Buddhism to fit this pre-existing model of filial piety. Right, right. Um, and I like that. And so maybe uh, this whole thing about creation, artistic creation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe it is kind of hard to understand on a Buddhist level. Um, and that, uh, but that's not a bad thing, right? That, you know, 
maybe, and I'm speaking as a Buddhist minister, you know, Buddhism doesn't have the answers for absolutely everything, <gasps> and that I have to expect, yeah, that no. I have to expect all my members to like <laughs> devote themselves 100% to it. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. Right? Um, and so, uh, but I do think obviously that it, it has a huge, a lot to say, and can have huge benefit, mm-hmm. right? And that it speaks very deeply to our experience. Uh, but, you know, opening up the possibility. And so one example with this musical creation thing is like the Grateful Dead. And I'm fortunate to have been to a couple of the Dead concerts, maybe three, and uh, caught, one of them was terrible. <laughs> um, it was really not a good show. But the first song, they hit it. I experienced it. And it was, uh, I think it was Bertha, this song, and um, Jerry Garcia takes a solo in the middle, and I'm just kind of watching, you know, and I was listening, and, you know, he's soloing. It's like, wow, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah, wow. Yeah, all right, Jerry, he's really going. Like, he was really touching something. And then you heard, like, the whole Boston Garden. It's like the old Boston Garden, so that's another thing. But it's, like, vibrating. Like, you heard this roar just start to come up. And this isn't something that you can just manufacture. This is magic. Like, and then I realized, yeah, these guys are, like, shamans or something. They're, like, wizards. And, you know, in this communal experience... And if the audience hadn't been there, it couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Like it was a magical moment of all the situa- all the circumstances being right, you know. And and it was just like the whole place was like roaring. They peaked. That's like the Grateful Dead experience. That's what people who haven't experienced that band don't get. That they create magic. <laughs> like they're <laughs> seriously, they're like magicians. Um, to to move an audience like that uh, is not easy yeah, yeah, yeah right and and you know they're not sitting there like you know saying yeah you you know it's not like a typical rock concert it's these guys just up there playing not moving you know it's kind of boring to look at but musically it was just like astonishing and so i can see that as a kind of shamanic kind of creation i don't see it as a buddhist thing necessarily mm-hmm. but i can appreciate it for that too and i can enjoy it sure. right even as a buddhist i can um look at things like that and and feel like wow this is great even that, like, I want to take part in it. I'm glad I'm here. I would go see more shows if it's going to be like this, you know? Um, and so the problem is, I mean, but I can turn it around and be, go Buddhist on it and say, if you start chasing that experience right. and the only happiness, and you, you know, you're unhappy unless you're experiencing that so that you, you know, um, end up following the dead all over the place. And, you know, okay, that's fine. But, you know, um, I hope that your life is in order too. I hope you can take that experience and learn to about yourself and uh, you know b- b- maybe create yourself or or whatever. Um, I would hope if if it does if that doesn't happen if it turns into like chasing that trip, yeah. Then yeah, I'll be critical, and I, that's where Buddhism can come in, right? Right. Um, but I feel like I can experience it without having to um, be Buddhist about it. Right, and so so that's where I am with my music right now. Maybe too is you know. Sometimes you gotta um, turn the Buddhist off. Yeah, yeah, or you know <laughs> that it doesn't have to be all about that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, yeah. I think that we get into trouble when we assume that Buddhism has all of the answers all the time, mm-hmm. and we're sort mm-hmm. of always Buddhist, and you know, because then you, if you go that far, then to me that that, to be honest, like being a Buddhist all the time is as much of a problem as following mm-hmm. the dead around and not having anything else in your life. Like mm-hmm. then it becomes this attachment. Mm-hmm. You're so attached to this idea that Buddhism has to have all of the answers that you are unable to let go mm-hmm. every once in a while and just experience things as they are. Mm-hmm.